1973. It stars Robert Blake as an Arizona motorcycle cop who has aspirations of being a detective. When he stumbles across a potential murder case, it could be his opportunity to stop issuing speeding tickets and get off his bike and start doing some real detective work. So, how did you come across this film first? Uh, I saw this when I was at film school about 20 years ago. I watched it in the uh, library viewing room on a VHS. Um, Is it pan and scan? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, probably the worst possible way to see it. But still, it was one of those films that as soon as I saw it, I knew like it was made for me. It's, mm. you know, it's the, for me, it's the perfect type of American movie. You know, it's tips its hat to all the legends it talks about its kind of its place in time it's beautifully made it's idiosyncratic I really like it I've probably seen it about 10 times wow in the last 20 years mm. <laughs> I was at film school 20 years ago um, you? I think I, I definitely saw it um, in the late 80s or possibly like 89, 90 on BBC Two for oh, sure. Okay. Um, I don't know if it was a movie drone presentation. I think it probably wasn't because it was pan and scanned and they were quite good about aspect ratios of movie drone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know how, how I came across it then. Um, maybe my dad was sort of knew it from when it came out. I know my, my dad yeah. likes Harley Davidson's. He's a big he doesn't ride one or anything but he's a big kind of American yeah, right, iconography because right. the title's so abstract isn't it when you're a kid you're just like what yeah. the hell is that so he might have sort of recommended it in passing or he might have put it on TV but I remember watching it then and then might have taped it again later on in life and had it on you know sitting in a dusty cupboard on tape mm-hmm. um Take 24 yeah <laughs> Blood and Blue and the Muppet yeah. movie and then I don't think I saw it again until very recently I picked it up on Blu-ray because I was keen to see it again and I'd heard how legendary the photography was mm. in the years since it's Conrad Hall isn't it yeah um, so I wanted to see it properly um, and I picked that up a few years ago and then kind of dusted it off to watch for this um, I, I, I must have seen it sometime in between because all the, everything in it was still quite fresh in my mind, sure, sure. even watching it now. Um, but yeah, so again, it was like it was a terrible pan scan TV screening from from the late eighties. It was kind of like where where seventies films ended up before home video took off. You just you'd have to watch a bastardized version on BBC Two yeah, yeah. late at night. Do you know much about the history of how the film came to be made? Again, it's one of those things that you sort of pick up without knowing where you picked it up. So somehow I, it may have been in conversations with you because you got me the soundtrack a few years back and we probably talked about it then. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, again, it's just one of those sort of kind of Hollywood, non-Hollywood legends that you sort of pick up and know yeah, yeah. vaguely that it was made, it was the one film that he made and it was, yeah, yeah. he had... But you he know, apparently produced another film for Hal Ashby. Oh, right. Um, yeah, uh, as producer and with Robert Blake starring in it. I know that one. It was one of the ones that kind of never appears on a filmography. Mm. It was a really troubled shoot. Oh, yeah, I can't remember what it's called off the top of my head, actually. Um, and then he was uh, slated as the director for Tom Horn, a Steve McQueen western. Right. And it just didn't work out. I can, I can well understand the fact that he didn't have a film career because he had... He's, 
I'd like to know more about him just out of interest because he seems an extremely organised and capable person seems who just juggles. Yeah, yeah, if you look at his kind of his, I guess his work life, he went from music industry, dabbled in film industry, and then after that got into kind of oil and uh, yeah, and uh, owned a country radio station and sold it for tens of millions yeah, of dollars. Yeah, con- was it country music? television so it was like the MTV for country music which obviously grew into it's a massive business now so he's sort of been and still like an accomplished Mm. musician on the side he was like a first guitarist in the mothers of invention with Frank Zappa all right so he's kind of yeah it feels like he's really creative but really smart yeah I I kind of get the feel he's he's kind of organised and capable and works hard and brings that to whatever he works in Mm. and does well as a result and able to make good decisions there's this legend about him giving up his fee for Electric Light and Blue only taking a dollar and giving all of his money to Conrad Hall yeah because he wanted a cinematographer he knew that the cinematographer would make or break the film Mm. it's good Good That's the sort of decision, you know, the sort of thing you can afford to do if you have, yeah. <laughs> if making the film is like a hobby, yeah, a secondary it. career mm. on top of your kind of million dollar music career. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I don't quite know how the studio or whoever financed the film got him involved. I'm guessing well, it's that sort of counterculture. There's, I watched, at the time. there was an introduction on the Blu ray. Um, I didn't listen to the commentary because I didn't have time, but there's a good introduction by him. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, and he comes across on camera as, you know, extremely likeable and pleasant and organised. And he says, um, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think because he knew Warner Brothers and he was uh, kind of... From Chicago. Yeah, and um, he was sort of organising music or something for them. I think at that time, post-Easy Rider, the studios were giving out, like, a million dollars to young filmmakers to make movies. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was I think Universal kind of offered him, you know, make make a movie. Um, and he was he was one of those. It's the same sort of thing Warner's were doing when Coppola set up Zoetrope. Oh yeah, okay. They said, you know, we'll we'll give you five little million dollar budgets to make movies, um, and we'll see what happens. How old was he when he made it? Twenty uh, seven ish, I think. Yeah, and it's just one of those things. That's that's what's happening in the film industry at the time. You know, after Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate and um, Easy Rider, particularly, it's just yep, there is a youth market. We can we can potentially make low budget movies and they'll be hits if the subject matter's right. So let's tap some some hip people to make movies. Yeah, I guess um, they what do they call it spread betting. Yeah, and he's you know he's a anyone who knows him must have known that he was a safer bet than say a Dennis Hopper type. You know, sure. he's, you know. I think the, the proof is in the movie itself. You give somebody highly organised the chance to make a movie, and they'll make an extremely well-made movie. Yeah, it's it's really solidly crafted, isn't it? Yeah. You know, it it ties together. I think some of the reviews of the time said it was quite uneven, but I think with a character study like this, you know, the maybe the narrative and the plotting's uneven, but it's secondary really to this picture of the, the you know this part of America and the American dream. Well, I think it's. I think you have to kind of take the reviews of the time with with a pinch of salt because it's. I, they also call it fascistic, didn't they? You know, it's yeah, it's, it was a writing yeah, f- film. It was. It was. A dare to feature was, policeman as the lead character. Yeah, it was. It was kind of a sympathetic policeman. 
yeah, it was really badly panned at Cannes as, mm. as a fascist statement, yeah. which is kind of ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you see that now looking back, yeah. how much they missed the point. The reviews for something like this make you realise that you have to take, you have to kind of contextualise the reviews of the time. Not everyone, you know, not every reviewer was on the same wavelength as the films they were reviewing. There was mm. still a lot of middle-aged and a lot of kind of conservative reviewers right through the 70s. Yeah, so a lot of the sure. films that we take as kind of like fresh and, and well-made and polished to those eyes were, you know, extremely yeah, yeah. uneven and well, shaky. And, and maybe on the polar side as well, you had the kind of the more left-leaning, you know, avant-garde, coyote cinema crowds, you know, who maybe also missed the... Because this film is about the guy that sits in the middle, really. He's kind of... He's not conservative or liberal. He's just a proper red, white, and blue American truth justice in the American way. You know, he's a proper old-fashioned gunslinger in that aspect. Mm. You know, he's he's about nobility and justice and the truth. And yeah, doing the right thing. There was, um, I think it was a. I've got a scribbled note here, and I can't remember if it was something from the movie itself. It seems a bit highfalutin to be from the movie, so I think it's something. Highfalutin. <laughs> Something that the director said in him, in his introduction, and he said like the the ethos of the film is that no matter where life finds you, what circumstances you inherit, it's a noble achievement to live by your own principles. Uh, did you enjoy it watching it again? Did how did it feel? I did enjoy it a lot, but I have to say I don't like it that much. It's a really tricky one because I think it's beautifully made and it's an absolute pleasure to watch but it's such a cynical film I can't like it, I can't get behind it I can't sympathise with it as a film um, I, I really really enjoyed watching it and I'll definitely watch it again because sure. it's it's beautifully made and constructed yeah, yeah. it's really nicely written, it's really nicely shot yeah I mean it's so delicate some of the little, little details in there that just give you a, an inkling into the, yeah. the thought process of the characters you know it's I think that for me it's an absolute pleasure just to see that kind of craftsmanship at work and the storytelling visually on the page in the performances yeah everything everything about it is, is really well put together and I, I worry you know sometimes when you say oh it's beautifully made it's beautifully shot it's just that it looks it looks picturesque mm. it's you know like every single shot choice every framing yeah, everything yeah. is really carefully considered and it cuts together beautifully yeah, and it's definitely. It's a really nicely made film, but as a drama and as a script, every single character in it, apart from the lead, is kind of really unsympathetic. And and it's not an accident. It's not they're accidentally unsympathetic. They, are, they it really hammers the point home. I think some of the the hippies that you see and you kind of expect to be the the, the drug dealers, the uh, you know the bad seeds, they actually turn out to be just quite normal people and I yeah they they kind of came off a little bit threatening to me so when Wintergreen goes with his detective boss to visit them and initially you know tries to speak to them on his yeah, own sure, sure. they kind of like round him up mm. effectively and they are kind of quite a threatening presence and the only thing that diffuses well, that power numbers isn't it that's the kind of yeah, but but that's that's how they're presented in the film they're not presented as completely harmless you know they they but have threatened by just turning up and, yeah but yeah because what they're used to is what we see shortly afterwards in that scene where 
half pool comes marching out, grabs one of them, pins them down, twists them around. Yeah, and that but that's the only them. that's the only thing that diffuses that threat though. And it's all of this is deliberately made. Hmm. You know, it's not that it just seems that way. You know, they do kind of round Wintergreen up and, you know, it does seem quite threatening. And the only thing that diffuses that is a cop being an even bigger dick and, and bullying his way through them. But do you um, think they're they're threatening Wintergreen or they just want him off? That, that it's not that they're overtly threatening him, it's just it is a threatening scene, you know, where he's sort of being pursued around the side of the the farm building, um, and then ends up sort of being surrounded by them. You know, it's not implicitly suggested they'll beat him up, but it's quite a threatening moment. Yeah, I always read it as more of a you know, get off my land type moment where just he's completely unwelcome because of what he represents. But they're the only characters who are even you know, remotely sympathetic, and you can say that that um, obviously we are going into massive spoilers here because we're assuming that you've seen the film, so yeah, yeah. we are sort of going to spoil the ending for you. Yeah. But um, you know, there's there's the the pleasant, amiable hippie who Wintergreen's partner tries to set up. The guy from the camper. Yeah, in the in the VW camper van, who's who's portrayed as quite harmless and a victim of a you know. And he's just making posters and tie dye yeah. shirts and. And he's, he you know, he seems like he seems like the most sympathetic character in the film, mm. until the end when he turns out to be harboring a, mur- a murderous evil hippie yeah, who yeah. then kills the lead character. So that's mm. that's the only real sympathetic character in the film, apart from the lead. Turns out not to be sympathetic, and everyone else around Wintergreen is just really unpleasant. You've got Billy Greenbush as his partner. Playing the Billy Greenbush part of the asshole best friend, yeah, yeah. the same part he plays in absolutely everything. Uh, he's, you know, the same role he had in Five Easy Pieces. Mm-hmm. And you got the detective who, initi- who Wintergreen initially looks up to, who turns yeah. out to be a, a bully and I don't know, impotent, impotent which just really was uh, too many nails in the coffin for me. That mm-hmm. whole scene with you know Wintergreen's girlfriend seems quite nice. Turns out to to have a two timing, isn't she? she yeah, yeah, she's. Cops. She's also seeing the detective, and she goes into an extended rant about how she how disappointed she is with basically everything in her life, and then the, reveals you know, the that film is about these people that are kind of heartbroken and isolated, you know, outside of the big cities, stuck on those long roads that weave across the back of America. You know, you have Monument Valley, this I- iconic space, but the roads that wind through it, and those small towns that were built maybe to facilitate the cross-country travel, you know, were all bypassed by giant highways at this time, weren't they? They were just, you know, those towns were dying at that point. I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't get a bigger picture sense of it like that. I'm just sort of... No, it's not. It's like a small portrait of, you know, sad, lonely people that are stuck out in, in the sticks. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like Cars. Have you ever seen Cars? I haven't seen Cars, no. <laughs> it's kind of about the same sort of thing, about all these uh, cars and a little town that used to be thriving on the Route 66 and then the big highways bypass it. This is a great companion piece <laughs> of Pixar's cars. Yeah. I don't know, I think you can do sort of small lonely town people and still make them sympathetic. You know, the last picture show is brilliant. Mm, yeah, that. true, true. But uh, yeah, I just, I kind of ended up hating every character except for Wintergreen. I really, I really like them all. I think for all of those reasons, I think not maybe not like as friends but I like to see them on the screen you know to see that kind of depth and mm. you know, pain and you know, frustrations and how all of those characters interact you know I find it all like credible and 
and quite satisfying. Uh, I just found it a little bit stagey with the the kind of reveal of the detective being weak and impotent and everything because mm. he is he is portrayed as you he's know a extremely giant, a giant yeah. and he's competent and you know when he finds the drugs in in the shack yeah yeah it's that brilliant a, bit of detective, detective work yeah, exactly. yeah but then it's this extremely clunky scene which literally tears him down mm. tears him to pieces and then he kind of but it also builds wintergreen up as well this little fellow he's like five foot two or something and the way mm. she talks about him being able to have sex like three times in the morning <laughs> you know and there's the last thing he needs is to suddenly have the scale shifted with this kind of his idol cop that he's shadowing to suddenly be pitched as the bigger man mm. yeah I just I, and overall I, you know within within the world of the film Wintergreen is just such a lovely guy mm. he's a really nice character and there's you know even the scene where he's he's kind of queuing up to get something from the from the snack van in the, the middle of the desert the yeah. Truck um, and he's flirting with the two girls yeah, behind him in the queue. It, you know, it could have been quite a sleazy scene, but mm. he's just so polite and sweet and lovable. Yeah, yeah, he's and really doesn't, charming, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, he's genuinely charming. Um, but the film kills him at the end. Mm. And then you also have, you know, the real world knowledge that Robert Blake's not really a really a very nice guy ever. Well, it's alleged, isn't it? I think he's sort of been in and out. Uh, throughout his entire career, though, throughout the seventies, you know, he's he's uh, he was a tough person on the on the set of Beretta oh, yeah, okay. and he was really really difficult on the Hal Ashby shoot and then you know to have allegedly murdered had his wife murdered later in life yeah, yeah. it's a little bit weird it's just a film that, that kind of is about a lovely character but it's just dripping with cynicism and unpleasantness I don't really see much of him I, I, I don't think I've seen him in anything apart from what's the David Lynch film that he's in Lost Highway yeah so he rocks up in that for about five minutes doesn't yeah, he's amazing in that. Super creepy. Yeah. yeah, he's. Um, I've only just recently seen in Cold Blood for the first time. I haven't seen that. He, it's absolutely brilliant. There's a couple of films I've seen late, too late in life. Um, the last few years, which uh, heralded as masterpieces, and then you watch them, you think, oh, why didn't I watch that sooner? Yeah, it's a masterpiece, and that's one of them. You could take Star Wars out of your top ten, <laughs> now, put something proper in. But yeah, in Cold Blood, he's great in that. Mm-hmm. Does it predate this? Yes. I think it was his breakthrough. Wasn't he a child star, actually? I think he... Wasn't he in, like... Oh, I don't know. One of those American sa- sandbox kids or something like that. I think he was a child actor and then changed his name. Yeah, so that... I just... It's a it's a real pain pleasure for me, the movie, because mm. I love watching it and I love the way it's made. Bittersweet. But I just think it's got... It's a bit cold-hearted. No, I, I can see why you'd say that, but I think all of the things that you're pointing out that leave you cold are all the things that give me pleasure and for me like every scene in this film is well considered and I really love the details in them I like the first thing we see is this what appears to be a suicide with the uh, shotgun being uh, braced on a chair and some string pulled around the trigger and it feels like somebody's cooking their last supper and it's really nicely put together it's, sequence yeah. it's just a handful of different angles that, that you alternate between and you can you know but it feels like from the outset you understand exactly what's happening and yeah. then you slowly get more and more confused because like the shots, tem- temporal shots. spatial relations are off aren't they yeah, and and like, shots seem to be out of sequence yeah, and then there's like a, a suicide and then somebody's still moving around mm. but because essentially it's two old men dressed exactly the same you don't even know who's who's who mm. and I think 
for the first time you see it, you're just left confused. You don't know what what you've seen. I don't feel like you feel like you've seen a murder at the end of that I, sequence. I feel like I don't remember first impressions from it because it's probably like the third time of watching the movie. But it did feel like it was it was how can I how can I put it? It was setting out a mystery very very clearly for you, and it wasn't trying to confuse you. Yeah. It was giving you all the pieces you need. Because the sequence to me sort of still sits in my mind as just a handful of like four or five different mm-hmm. angles that you go between of these different preparations being made, and then when you think the sequence is complete, then one of those angles continues to play, yeah, yeah. and you realise, okay, well this is not quite what I was watching, but I have enough pieces here, and I'm sure it'll it'll work out later in the movie. That's it. It's, it doesn't feel kind of confusing or upsetting in any way. It's just it's just really nicely handled. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's kind of telling you to just look a bit closer as well as yeah. the film plays out. Every scene kind of has that that detail, and then uh, after that we get the slow fade in from black and white onto uh, from Monument Valley and black and white, yeah, fading down into color as the film kind of begins, and we see the the Volkswagen camper coming along the long road. Yeah, it's um apparently that idea of fading from black and white. It is purely just to pay homage to like the John Ford westerns. Yeah. That the filmmakers would have grown up watching like in black and white. So they were used to seeing Monument Valley in black and white. We're kind of I don't know like Once Upon a Time in the West is our kind of early references for that stuff. I'm not a big John Ford fan. Have you ever watched those older? Westerns? Uh, well, the searches obviously. Oh, yeah. That's, that's, that's well. Vista Vision color. Yeah, but um. One of the things from the introduction on the Blu-ray is he was talking about how he worked with Connie Hall um, and he's saying they kind of reached an agreement between themselves that he would allow Conrad Hall to, to do whatever he wanted in the interiors because oh, okay. he was all about doing kind of complicated, dark mm-hmm. uh, setups. Some beautiful yeah. nighttime interior sequences. Yeah, so Conrad Hall kind of had free reign on the photography of all the interiors and, and the, the kind of darker scenes, but on the outdoors scenes in the landscape stuff you know the director was the boss and you say right we are going for the John Ford yeah, yeah. huge landscape shots and that's you know, a very explicit reference to those yeah yeah I mean they're breathtaking as well aren't they you know there's two English guys looking at America through the prism of the movies yes. you know to see Monument <laughs> Valley it's definitely one of those staggering unique landscapes that is all mm. about American history and it's one of the pleasing indulgences of the film is that it, it you know, it is a, it's a very personal film made with complete creative freedom. Mm. So there are these little moments in it, like the introduction introduction of the landscape and the, the final shot, which I'm sure we'll get to later, um, which are you know long and indulgent, but creatively so. I think when you look at those landscapes, I think what he's saying is that he's kind of a, a proud American because it is celebrating the American landscape and the film is about America but seen from the middle I'm not too sold on the fact that it's a celebration of America but I, I, I think those scenes are just visual homages to other movies but you, you know the title is about uh, Electroglide in Blue for people that don't know it's a Harley Davidson motorbike You know, we see the characters playing pool and reading comics and you know it just feels like it's all those things that uh, are part of is is the title Electrogliding Blue? Is it is it a positive title? Because that turns out to be like the wish 
that Wintergreen's partner has. Yeah, yeah, that's that's, that's his dream motorbike that he wants to Zipper. own. Zipper's bike Zipper's that he's been dreaming about. Yeah, and that he eventually buys with stolen the, money. And it's almost the same as the bike he rides for work, which yeah. is really weird. Isn't it? <laughs> it's just a slightly different yeah, colour. I want my work bike at home. And it, you know, that turns out to be the bike that, that Zipper s steals money yeah, from yeah. the crime scene in order to buy himself, and then that that it's the last piece of the puzzle, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that and that doesn't end well. So the fact that mm. the film is named after that suggests mm. possibly the opposite to me. Yeah, yeah, good point. Mm. Yeah, and I suppose when you look at the what happens in those landscapes throughout the film, it's all uh, dark and disappointing. Maybe it's the disappointment of the American dream. Or maybe it's just those landscapes make people into kind of frontiersmen. You know, you know, it's a violent landscape for violent men. And lonely. And lonely. Yeah, but I think Wintergreen is supposed to represent the best of that. Yeah. Frontier, pioneer spirit. Yeah, yeah, he carries decency with him wherever he yeah. goes. One, one of my favorite sequences is the uh, right at the beginning, the introduction to John Wintergreen. I think. Uh, do we do we first? I think when we cut into his, is it a cabin? Where does he live? Is it a cabin or a trailer or something? Uh, it's like a. It looks like a hotel room or something. Yeah, and he's got the American flag up on the wall, and we pan down, and there's the uh, the waitress there, and she's kind of ecstatic, and he's basically giving her some oral sex under mm -hmm. the air, and she's like, "Oh, John, you're such a stud. What are you? You're <laughs> such a man. You're a real man." And then, uh, so we know, like, he's a patriot and he's a stud. And then we see his kind of um, motocross trophies. So we know that he's kind of that American hero, you know, the, the kid who's good on the bike at school, you know. Mm. And then, but then he sort of, he gets out of bed and he's doing his, his pull-ups. Did you notice this? He's, as he's doing his pull-ups, he's got his white briefs on it, but he, like, his bum is going up and down over the trophy like it's shafting him in the ass it's a really funny scene and I think there's lots of those little kind of gags throughout the film it's, you know it definitely makes me laugh visually and also some of the, the character stuff but yeah oh, the, the way later in the scene when he's getting dressed it kind of focuses on his gun it's kind of it's a parody it's a, it's yeah, a kind of jokey it, you know it does the freeze frame the old wild bunch freeze frame on the kind of details as he's getting dressed yeah Mm. But then, but it, it undermines that as well because he kind of does the whole uniform, the leather, the tight uniform, the badge, polished up, and then he puts his sunglasses on and they're bright pink. So <laughs> he's really like effeminate pink sunglasses that he just slips on. Again, it's weird that people would say it's a fascist statement when it's 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 kind of clearly having a little bit of fun at, at the character's expense, whilst yeah, you know, while really still funny, presenting him as likable. Yeah, exactly. The next sequence is where he, this is where you start to really feel how great a cinematographer Comrade Hall is. Those shots of the motorbikes all lined up, all the police bikes, and then Wintergreen talking to his sergeant in silhouette, and he's just talking to him about trying to transfer to homicide. So we start to get this idea that Wintergreen has ambition. You know, he doesn't want to just ride the bike. He wants something more out of his life as a policeman. And then uh, the next scene is the. The Sarge, where he's, uh, where he just speaks to the troops all lined up alongside their bikes, and he says, uh, "Good morning, pigs. Good morning, you fascists, you honkies, you killers, you bastards." <laughs> and he just sort of escalates this rant, or and you're just like, "What on earth is going on here?" And he, then he's like, "This uh, introduction has been brought to you by the youth 
engagement service and these are some of the insults you can expect mm. on Saturday night when we're policing the, the jazz concert it's just a really funny sequence mm. I think it's one of those that they've lifted and put onto the soundtrack as well so oh, okay. yeah if you listen to the soundtrack it has all clips of the film interspersed with the music tracks mm. it's really nice as that's happening we see um, Wintergreen in context to the other police officers and it's a really nice visual gag about his height you know the camera tracks across these kind of square shouldered cops with their helmets on and their sunglasses and then it just tracks straight across till you get to the top of his helmet and it's just mm. there at the bottom of the frame and then pans down to him and we see just how short he is you know he's probably even too short to be a police officer but the trophies indicate that maybe he's like a local you know, motocross bike hero so he probably got a little dispensation or something yeah is that you because obviously you know the film in a lot more detail than me is that like the the film kind of sets him up a short early on and that's kind of you know a little bit of uh self-deprecatory humor mm. you know the, we've got a short hero but does does it refer to his height again yeah it does when he's in the queue at the um uh, ice cream van yeah. he's talking about Alan Ladd being the same height as oh, him yeah, and yeah, he talks yeah. about him uh, you know uh, Alan Ladd having to stand on a box to kiss the leading ladies and all of that stuff so yeah it's something he's conscious of I think but he's not like small man syndrome but well, that's the thing it's just it, another challenge isn't it can you imagine all the big jocks that's and, fairly early in the film and that's still when it's setting him up as a character because mm. the film kind of only really sets him up a short early on mm. And if it was going to, and this is good, this is a good thing, because if it was going to keep having jabs at him about it, it I'd find it quite hard to swallow. Cause yeah, but it's something it's, he's, he's, he's not... He's not hung up on it yeah, at exactly, all, no. That's it, and yeah. for the rest of the film, you know, okay, you've established him, he's a short guy, um, but it's not an issue later on. Mm. And, you know, he, he turns out to be, you know, more than competent as a cop and as a human being yeah, throughout yeah, exactly. the film. Um, so it's just, I think it's just another one of those it's little kind a great, of... It's a great image as well, I think you've got the uh, the vinyl soundtrack which we should talk about because it's like a, such a beautiful mm. beautifully packaged soundtrack but it's uh, like a silver gatefold that doesn't have any writing on it other than that quote um, me and Alan Ladd were the same height and it's a gatefold that when you fold it out and look at the, the front and back cover together it's just that long line of cops yeah. with him being short in the middle that's it you know it's it's beautiful in fact apparently that picture uh, is on the wall of the chief in hill street blues the next couple of scenes are just uh wintergreen doing the work it's him on patrol stopping uh people speeding violations but again i think what we see here is wintergreen's morality i, I love the first person he stops is a california cop mm. hammering through the desert in a convertible with a, a beautiful woman on his arm yeah and uh you know he just flashes his badge at wintergreen and expects to be let go <laughs> wintergreen still writes him up and he's the cop gets right in his face doesn't he wintergreen's yeah. like well look here's my badge number if you do have a complaint please <laughs> address it to my sergeant <laughs> and the guy's it's, like you're a joke buddy you're a joke it's beautifully played as well because mm. because wintergreen is is absolutely composed and in control mm. and but he's also in awe of the cop he's like oh you're a detective i want to be a detective i'm trying to get a transfer i, I just i really like i really like the way that robert blake plays it as well because it's it's kind of written for laughs mm. the fact that he would do that and you do it so straight-facedly and mm. and you know it's kind of deflating this 
detective's kind of pompous bluster yeah, and yeah. stuff, but at the same time, it's played so straight mm. and played so you know pure. You just end up loving the character at the end yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I quite like the, how that scene opens, where you just see this car racing through the dips on the highway, and then as it crests the hill, the motorcycle appears behind <laughs> you. You have no idea where he's come from. I think it, even the California detective says that, didn't he? He's like, well, "Are you hiding in a ditch, buddy?" Or something like that. It's really good. And then the next guy he pulls over is a truck driver that's taking a truck that's too heavy for that road. Yeah. Has to, he has to turn him around and send him on a massive detour around. And the guy's just trying to... And he has to give him a ticket as well, right? Yeah. The guy's just trying to find a, like a, a sympathetic hook where they're both on the same page to see if he can get away with his ticket. And it turns out they're both ex-Marines. Yeah, both come back from now. Come back from Nam, yeah, that's it. And uh, the truck driver's like, oh, I'm glad I found you, brother. You know, trying to just like play on his sympathies. And obviously, he doesn't know Wintergreen as, as well as uh, as we do. The truck driver's like, Oh, there goes another job. You know, like, I can't hold down a job since I got back from Nam. Yeah, I'm really glad I found you. And Wintergreen mm. says something like, oh, I'm, I'm glad you found me too, because I'm going to tell you something now that it took me six months. Yeah, I'm going to tell to you learn. something. He's like, How long have you been back? It's like six weeks. And he's like, Oh, well, I'm going to do for you after six weeks what it took someone six months to do for me and he's like yeah what's that <laughs> nothing <laughs> nothing yeah I'm gonna do nothing for you but again you know it's it's a testament to the, the writing and the acting um, that something like that that could could have come off quite spiteful again it just feels like strengthening character yeah yeah and it's, I think he's saying you know don't look for handouts mm. you know it's this is America you know if you if you work hard you'll We've all been to war, yeah. and you know, it's a, it's an e but it's an easy one to describe that way. But it's a tricky one to play. Yeah, I, I can see a million actors d just delivering the same lines yeah, yeah. And, and 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 not getting it across. Mm. It's really on point. Isn't yeah, it? you know, and both characters are excellent yeah. as well. You know, you feel like the heartbreak for that other guy who just like can't get his shit together. Mm. The next scene is like yeah, it's one of those classic western scenes where you have the gunslinger stalking through the. Uh, Brush, the brush is that it? What do we call that? The, you know, the sort of mountainside. Yeah, the, the brush. The brush. It? Yeah, it just sounds weird. Stalking through a brush mm. uh, with the trees and this all kind of silhouetted shot against the the sun, and you know, it's got the gun up in the air. You know, it's it's a proper western sequence. Mm. And then he's basically stalking his partner, the zipper. So introduction to that character who is a kind of likable douchebag. Yeah, it's it's basically. Billy Green Bush, although weirdly we did watch um, Jericho Mile. Yeah, um, he plays the warden. He, he plays the warden in that, which is the first time I've ever seen him play a, <laughs> a straight, character. respectable <laughs> character. Yeah. But I think when we first meet him, we do like him. You know, he's kind of he's always packed lunch and he's got his comic books and he's just kind yeah, of he's hiding kind of in the shade. Likable, likable slacker kind of yeah, that's it. lazy kind of likable bum mm. in a uniform. Yeah, yeah. It only sort of takes a darker turn later on where he tries to set up a hippie just out of out of spite really and malice and yeah you, and you realize okay this is not that likable a character yeah and there's also in that scene where wintergreen is saying come on let's go on patrol let's go and chase somebody down there's got to be somebody doing something bad somewhere and zipper's just like i'm staying here in the shade and as wintergreen walks away zipper like draws his gun and points it at the back of Wintergreen's head and mm. tracks him down the hill. And 
there's, there's a little bit of darkness lingering, isn't there? Yeah. And after that, they go for the ice cream. I love that scene. It's so good. It's isn't brilliant. It? Yeah. Apparently, that's like Conrad Hall's. One of those is Conrad Hall's kids. One of the kids, and the other one is uh, the director's children. I think it's just that really nice moment at the end of that scene where, and it feels like this has been like pastiched a dozen times since then, but. And he orders his food and he says, uh, I'll have a grilled cheese sandwich. And then he snaps his fingers and says, like, and a cherry Coke. You know, he's <laughs> so, like, he's cool. He's doing it for the girls. He's not doing it for the camera. Yeah. But, you know, it's a really nice sort of cheerful moment. Mm. And it feels like I've seen that in a dozen movies since then. So after that, you've got, like, I think it's probably the first scene that kind of makes it, that you would say dates it as a 70s movie, where he stops a, a hippie's VW camper in the middle of the road um, and it kind of they're, they're harassing the hippie aren't they they make him like his, his camper is full of like boxes and they make him take everything out and empty yeah. it out by the side of the road and it's clearly just a load of like you know music industry tat it's posters yeah, yeah. and badges and all, all crap like that but because he's got it's long hair Ashbury isn't it yeah and he's like come on man you know doing the, the whole hippie act but yeah this is kind of like the first scene that, that I guess you could say makes it makes it of its time um, and it's the first scene that turns really dark, isn't it? It's yeah. yeah. This is where we get an inkling into Zipper's character mm. when he starts harassing the, the hippie and plants drugs in his uh, yeah, and tries to get school. Wintergreen to play along and 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 discover the drugs that right. he's planted in Wintergreen. I, I'm not sure how 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 things proceed after that because you know Wintergreen isn't going to play along and yeah. reveal drugs. I mean, do they still bust the hippie? I'm not sure because basically Wintergreen just walks off, doesn't he? He's like, yeah. yeah, I'm not, I'm not getting. He doesn't say I'm not getting involved in this, but he's just like, well, you know, this is your thing, and gets on his bike and drives off. But I guess, I guess, I mean, Zipper must just continue with the bust anyway because Wintergreen says later in the film that he owes him one, that yeah, right. he owes the hippie one. So I, I, I get the feeling that the bus goes ahead and it's just a bit of nasty, yeah, yeah. corrupt police work. But the very next shot after the camper van is the poster for Easy Rider yes the shooting yeah. in the firing range yeah that's it <laughs> so you, you have this kind of uh, you have Wintergreen riding off you have this hippie left with Zipper and then the next shot is literally Dennis Hopper and uh, Peter Fonda on their bikes and you just get a second or two to go like well that's weird mm. and then boom like these big cannon shots going into it and it's Wintergreen shooting at the firing range shooting at the hippies and I think if anything, that's probably the sequence that, at the time, people reacted badly to. Yeah, really. yeah. I mean, it's one that you can, you can, you know, in 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 the picture reality, you can, you know, write it yeah, off as totally it's not necessarily yeah, Wintergreen yeah. shooting at hippies. It could be any of the cops could put that up, or yeah, yeah, just it. as a joke or something. But yeah, easy to misinterpret. Well, also, it's a poster, right? So maybe it came from the uh, the hippies camper. Yeah. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I didn't think of that. That's probably it, right? That's what mm. they're saying. So yeah, he did get busted, and they took his stash. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Right. Very clever. It's cleverer than I thought. <laughs> uh, and then, so at this point, we're almost like half an hour into the movie, and we still really haven't had any plot points. You know, we've just spent time with the characters and sinking into the world. And uh, next, it, we're in in the bar, and it's just cops playing pool, and they've 
really nicely shot sequence. It's so beautiful. Just isn't it? just kind of panning across the bar and catching yeah. details and, and stuff. And they're just chatting, you know. Yeah. There's no big statements. It, again, it's just reiterating this idea that Winterfell wants to be a detective, and Zippers saying to him, "Why do you want to do that? Like we've got such a, a cushy life." Mm. Yeah, and he says he wants to get paid to think. Yeah, yeah that's it. And uh, he says, like, you've got a dream as well. He says, dreaming's part of the game, right? And, and haven't you got a dream? And this is when Zipper talks about having, like, a nice big motorbike. After, you know, you built up the character for half an hour, uh, this is when the plot starts to kick in. Um, and they discover a kind of crazed old man who everyone's familiar with, a harmless old man um, in a state of shock running through the desert. So they chase him down on their bikes. Um, and that starts to lead to what what becomes you know the driving plot of the film. Yeah, that's it. So they they finally pin down old Willie, played by Alicia Cook Jr., who you, you probably recognise from everything, pretty, pretty much everything. Everything in the twentieth century. He's in the Killing, Pat Garrett, Billy the Kid. What else did we say he was in? Uh, One Eyed Jacks. One Eyed Jacks. Um, yeah, I mean, well, instantly recognisable faces. Mm. In a performance that that Shane enjoys, but I, I do he's not. Very, yeah, he's like he's crying, he's drooling, he's a he's a proper. It's supposed to be like a mountain hillbilly type. You know, he keeps talking about going up into the mountains. But so. he's he's yeah, just a, a harmless kind of old desert bum who's half mad and lives lives out in the desert and wanders the mountains. And everyone's familiar with him and yeah, knows he's harmless. A, yeah, he's, that's a, it. he's a he's a well liked guy. Idiot, basically. Yeah, but. Okay. He's in a proper state. He's hysterical, isn't he? And yeah. It's interesting. Zipper gets to him first, and old Willie's talking about Frank killing himself in the cabin, and Wintergreen just gets the sniff of something and goes racing off, leaves Zipper with the old man. Mm. He's like, you take care of him, I'm going to the cabin, just ditches him. And there's a really nice sequence that follows with Wintergreen in the cabin, not sure what to do. He's faced with a dead body, He's not quite sure what to do, and so he's he's just narrating to himself. He's like, take notes, take notes, take mm. notes, and he starts writing down his observations. Yeah, he's just talking down his panic, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, that's just, it, that's it. Yeah, and they're, they're pretty uh, pretty astute observations actually. And mm. he's, he thinks we don't we don't know straight away, but he thinks maybe there's a, a homicide. But there's a brilliant scene that makes me laugh every time with the um, the uh, the coroner's there, and he's just like, yes, yeah, a suicide. Let's <laughs> let's get out of here, and. Uh, Wintergreen talks to him about like, or in fact, he's he's saying to him, "No, you're wrong," you know, and he just says that he's interfering with, the, he's tampering with evidence, mm. and uh, I'm going to make you an accessory after the fact in a murder case, you know. Yeah. And then they're just screaming and shouting at each other. It's so funny. And but then, again, it's it's a funny scene, but it does the, the coroner is rattled by it, um, and he, you know, he actually does kind of eventually give in. And it's it's a really nice you know kind, of, kind of yeah because there's there's a bit of Wintergreen calls him a hatchet artist <laughs> which is really funny and then the Wintergreen sergeant turns up and like just picks him up and throws him out the door and then the the sergeant says to the uh, the coroner he's like you know what are we dealing with here is it a suicide and uh, the coroner just goes mental he's like I have to deal with this shit from him now I'm gonna take it from you what are you get the fuck out of here it's a really funny scene. But he's rattled, though. I mean, maybe maybe I'm just trying to... I'm making the same point with every scene, but it does kind of... It does build up Wintergreen's strength of character mm. that he's willing to take this guy on and actually does kind of 
he does shout him down a bit. Yeah, yeah, he? yeah. Gets him to do his fucking job. Well, then after that we get Harv Paul turns up, you know, who is the uh, the the proper gunslinger. He's got the ten gallon hat. He's got the yeah. he's got the nice suit. You know? And he's he gets all the iconic framing with the yeah, light behind him it. and everything, doesn't exactly, he? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, he's cool as fuck, man. Mm. You know, he's a proper man's man. He's alpha. Yeah, you know? takes the cigars out of his pocket and <laughs> yeah, lights that's up. It, that's it. <laughs> he's got the boots and everything. And then he, uh, you know, walks straight into the crime scene and straight away takes Wintergreen's side. You know, mm. even says to the coroner, you know, a suicide to the chest. He basically steps in and becomes like Wintergreen's mentor. He's like, yeah. you know, I need a new driver. Let's let's get you out of the uniform and into a car and mm. all the things Wintergreen's dreamed about. This uh, this cop, this detective who recognizes Wintergreen's assessment of the crime scene as being valid mm. uh, you know they send the coroner off to do a proper autopsy and uh, Harv Pauli has this magnificent line when he looks from the coroner to Wintergreen and he just says to Wintergreen incompetence is the worst form of corruption mm. such a powerful <laughs> line isn't it you know I think he's uh, he's obviously a man that looks forward to mentoring and bringing through a young guy and you know, mm. making a difference on the police force and all that stuff and the next scene is the uh, autopsy scene where they discover that the shotgun blast to old Frank's chest is actually hiding uh, a tutu slug so he's been he's already been shot so there's a lie I'm going to try and explain it but there's a brilliant line uh, which again I think is half pulled and it, he just says looks like he was dead before he decided to commit suicide <laughs> such a great line but they they really build Harv Pool up in his early scenes, don't they? Oh yeah, because the coroner's like, you did it again, Harv. You really caught you caught another one. You're mm. the best, Harv. We love you, Harv. They really really build him up for the viewer as well as for mm. Wintergreen. So his first job as a driver, he goes to pick up Harv from the bar, and this is where we see his waitress girlfriend again, and she's congratulating him on. What she say? She congratulates him on graduating to play with the big boys you know because she obviously knows this is his dream right mm. it's quite a nice scene as well because um you know he's invited to, he's actually invited to sit down with the detectives yeah, at the yeah. table are they playing cards i think so yeah. yeah and he's actually invited to join them and you might possibly expect some condescension or a little bit of tension or something but he's you know he's immediately welcomed in and, and made to feel part of the group and yeah. it's, it's not overstated but it's just a it's just pleasant yeah yeah but harv is like holding court isn't he and this yeah. is where we kind of see that he's a bit of a dick as well yeah. he's talking about uh, he, he says this country is undergoing a precisely formulated conspiracy of police genocide uh, whatever the hell that means he's basically saying too many cops are dying oh, yeah. yeah but you know precisely coordinated <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like Sterling Hayden. yeah that's it yeah. The, the next one is when they go and see uh, uh, old Willie convalescing it's another scene that's quite hard work <laughs> I quite like it but only because it's so ridiculous uh, Harv shows Willie his badge and Willie's trying to touch it and Harv's like don't touch the badge you just start to get all these sort of little clues about what, what a dick he's going to turn out to be later on Yeah. but in the background you know it's it's not a hospital it's more like a mental home and they're all arguing and, f and fighting over the comics fighting over comics and somebody keeps shouting out who's got Batman <laughs> who's got Batman which really makes me laugh I do like I do like scenes in mental hospitals and and 
hospitals for the elderly and, and you know mentally ill where comics are seen as their reading material as a comics fan it's, yeah, it's a yeah. good feeling to see yeah, that yeah that's it that's my people <laughs> I mean the scene really it's kind of just to give us this idea that there was $5,000 stashed in the cabin somewhere in William Frank's cabin and so they go to, straight to the cabin and here we get like a really nice piece of detective work from Harv as he's sort of looking for something that's out of place he's mm. moving around the space he's lecturing at the same time um, before they go in he has this thing where he's like okay Wintergreen listen to the desert this desert is going to help you solve a murder but the thing is you could I would, were it me um, I would have suggested shuffling a couple of scenes around I would have put that scene before the bar scene I would have I would have had that discovery and that really good bit of um, Frank Poole detective work mm -hmm. because they they examine the the shack and he Poole is looking for something out of place mm -hmm. and finds a, like a religious icon statue yeah, which he smashes open and is full of pills. It doesn't Wintergreen say to him, "Are you religious, Harv?" And he's like, <laughs> "My religion is myself." <laughs> but that's that is a really good bit of detective work mm -hmm. and the scene wouldn't play so ridiculously if you hadn't undermined a little bit in his kind of yeah conspiracy theory thing at the bar. If you'd swapped do you it around, think that's us looking at it with the uh, prism of like forty-five years. No, I'm just thinking in terms of film of the film's construction. It would seem neater to me to put the scene where Harv is a really good detective earlier on, before right, you before slightly before you start undermining him with his kind of paranoia at the bar. I guess then they'd maybe have to squeeze in another day in the timeline and the next sequence is them going to the the hippie commune um which i you know i guess if that's i always pictured hippie communes as being places where they've built like really nice you know tents and uh, you know it, it should look like quite nice and it's really just a broken down old farm isn't it you know there yeah there's like pigs everywhere and yeah i mean commune I... really muddy and it just looks doesn't look that a place to hang out I thought it'd be like a yoga retreat or something you know? it says so much about you Shane it says more <laughs> about you than it does about the film <laughs> but you know communes are always to me about hard work you know from kibbutzes onwards oh, yeah, it's, okay. you know it is physical labour you go there and build something from nothing you get a lovely tracking shot though where uh, so they've gone looking for Bob Zemko who apparently his fingerprints are on the uh the bust of Jesus that contains all the pills, the red suppers or downers, whatever they are that they find in in, uh, in the shack. In the shack. So I wonder how quickly they got those fingerprints processed. Mm. Maybe that was where they should have put the bar scene while they're waiting for the fingerprints. Yeah. Okay. Maybe we'll recut it. <laughs> we'll break it down, recut it, <laughs> restore it to. Um, if you're listening, we can save it. You can save your movie. Can save your movie. <laughs> we, we worked it out. Yeah. It's to do with the inconsistency on the speed in which the fingerprints would be processed. Yeah, and yeah. Some some forty five years later, we finally cracked <laughs> your movie. Cracked it, and we can save half pool. Anyway, so at the hippie commune. So yeah, there's a lovely tracking shot where Wintergreen's just looking from stable to stable, and it tracks all in one shot, and you have like all these pigs in the mud. And then you have uh, these beautiful bikes all crammed into one space, and then the next shot is just like a hippie by himself mm. in a stable, just like sat in the mud. 
Mm. And Wintergreen comes in to try and talk to him and just sinks into the mud. Pig shit. Into Apparently. Pig shit, yeah, yeah. Pig shit, yeah. But then this is this is for me where because we they were start talking about him little chief, don't they? The, yeah. Uh, the this is where it, this is where for me we sort of we sort of differ about how the hippies are characterised because, you know, I, you say they're kind of positive characters in the film. I'm not saying they're villains to any at all. It's just they're not, they're not presented as well. As you just pointed out, they're not presented as kind of ethereal or you know infinitely yeah, yeah. benevolent. They are just kind of like hardworking guys who don't really want this stranger on their on their land. I mean, yeah, you sort of talk about like commune, communes and hippies and things, as one does. As one uh, does. As one does. Bloody hippies. Um, and I'm just thinking about like Manson family and you know that kind of, you know, this idea of there being a counterculture movement that actually yeah, a, a darker, a darker side of hippiedom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. There was that thing on Netflix about the um, was it Oshu, and you have. Waco in the eighties, who maybe, maybe mm. and what was the one in Japan where they ended up uh, dropping sarin gas on the, uh, God, on the underway, uh, underway, underground. So maybe yeah, they should outlaw communes. Actually, mm. maybe it's not a good thing to let people live outside of mm. society's rules. I think anything outside mainstream culture should be banned, <laughs> should be outright, banned. banned, and and deported, regulated. Yeah. <laughs> it should be regulated. No, but there is there is definitely an acknowledgement. I, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I'm leaning on it too heavily, but you get the feeling in this that hippies aren't, you know, which is possibly part of the feeling of the times. The hippies aren't all benevolent, ethereal, wafting, yeah, yeah, yeah. grass smoking, lightweights. You know, there are there is a, a wide variety of people in every subculture. You know, there are some people who. I'm not suggesting these are heavies, but it, the scene is played in a way that they're slightly intimidating. Wintergreen is slightly intimidated until Paul steps in. Yeah, yeah. But then something completely different happens, um, and Paul is just revealed to be a, a pig. Yeah, a, yeah, that's a, it. A, a bully fascist pig. Yeah. And it's um, it's a horrible scene. Mm, yeah, yeah. The character just kind of crumbles completely within that one scene. Yeah, yeah, and I think because we're on Wintergreen's side we see Paul from his perspective I think yeah. if he was more inclined to the right wing leaning of Paul then maybe no this I mean this is a moment for Wintergreen this is a moment where he's he's absolutely sickened by it and it's not the same as the previous scene with the hippie in the VW bus where he's just kind of like I think his strongest emotion is Zipper why are you being why are you being a dick yeah, come yeah. on and just walking away from it at this this time round, he's he's genuinely sickened, and he's mm. you know he's lost. Yeah, it's brutal. Isn't yeah, it? he's lost a hero, mm. um, just in that one scene. But the problem for me is that the film okay it demolishes Paul at that level and in that scene, um, but then you have this next. It's fairly soon after they go to the bar, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's the next. It's, it's, it's the it's, next sequence because Harv's he's on a high from knocking around the hippies and getting a little bit of information you know and moving further along in the case mm. uh, did you notice Nick Nolte in that scene by the way I did this time round yeah, you yeah. told me about it before <laughs> yeah. and um, it's pointed out as well in the introduction there's a little freeze frame saying oh, right, that okay. he's, he's a really kind of like enthusiastic kid and he wished he could have gotten more of a part for him mm -hmm. he did alright he? he did okay one or two things I think maybe a few people have seen 
But yeah. then the, the entire following scene is the one that I have the biggest problem with. This and it's is like the death of Harv Paul, essentially, isn't it? You know. Well, he's already dead, and this this scene just kind of like lays his corpse out and <laughs> pisses on it and spits on it, and it doesn't do any favors to the female character it's giving a scene to either. It could have been written a completely different way. It's basically the only female character in the film, apart from a few kind of passing oh, hippies. Yeah, sure. And she's, you know, she comes across fine in the earlier scenes, but she's given this horrible, kind of drunken, out of nowhere, desperate, my life has been a terrible disappointment. Oh, and by the way, Frank Poole is impotent. Mm-hmm. It's just, come on. I mean, you've already demolished the character to, to do it at that level. Yeah, I, I know everything that you're saying. I kind of like but it. you like it. <laughs> yeah, I like it. And it sets up as well, Harv, who, you know, at this point we don't like him going into this scene, and it just sets him up beautifully when he says, uh, I want to introduce you to a young lady that has brought a lot of happiness to my life. <laughs> He's saying to Winter again, come and come and meet the woman of my dreams. And then when they walk into the bar, you know, the bar's closed. She's paralytic, staggering around. But it's quite clumsily played because for me, I, or put together, because for me, I, I would want to see Wintergreen more on edge and I would want him, for her not to let it out that he's also been sleeping with her. That would be that would be part of the tension of the scene for me and that just kind of slips away. It's just yeah, not really putting, an issue. She's putting Harv in his place, isn't she? And I think that's kind of what they're, the filmmakers are trying to do they're trying to make sure that we know that they don't sympathise with Harv so they're just mm. just bashing him bashing him down yeah that's my least favourite scene and it's for me decisively where the film kind of crosses the line in hating all its characters or you know presenting a thoroughly unsympathetic bunch of characters except for the lead um, i I don't know why the girlfriend had to be so unsympathetic completely out of out of nowhere and I don't know (laughs) I don't know why the film has to demolish Harv in that way as well I mean I'm I'm not like sensitive about his being impotent it just seemed unnecessary when you've already killed (laughs) the character maybe impotency is something you're not comfortable (laughs) no I'm perfectly comfortable talking about (laughs) shut up perfectly comfortable it just it just You're seemed like it tipped the film over the edge for me. It, yeah, right. It's the it's the point where I realised, do I actually like this film? Am I, you know, I'm enjoying watching it on a technical mm. level, but I don't know. I really enjoy the pantomime of that scene and the way she puts on the music and dances around and mm. talks about uh, you know brief history on as a showgirl and you know working in the movies and all of the kind of grim reality of. Be interesting Ho- to know. Hollywood line. Be interesting to look into the actress's past and see if any of that actually applies to her career. Oh yeah, probably. Because a lot of the photos of her in her, mm. uh, when she was younger, look look like the sort of thing, look genuine, you know. So, after uh, Harv has been cuckolded, he basically boots Wintergreen off the case, and we see the next sequence is him back on his motorbike, hanging around with Zipper. Yeah. You know, his brief kind of flirtation with being a detective, given that it's a small world, that's probably his last chance, maybe, as yeah. well. So that's it. He's resigned to this reality of being on the bike, being with Zipper, chasing down. But not, you know, yeah, but not, not deflated. You know, he's not. He's not feeling particularly sorry for himself. He's just. Uh, he's, no, I, but he's seen behind the curtain, hasn't he? You yeah. Know, it's that dream of being a detective and being in that world he's seen people that live there and 
I think maybe he's got a lucky escape. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, he's he's it's he's kind of handed back a poison chalice, hasn't he? Really, it's it's that it's not everything that he thought it was. So he's not necessarily gutted to be back on his bike and yeah, yeah. and doing his job, um, which he does, and it leads into a really really good action sequence yeah, which so I wasn't even, expecting yeah yeah it just comes out of nowhere doesn't it yeah because you think oh what, what's he going to do now it's him and Zipper just sat there on the side of a mountain Zipper's reading Wonder Woman you know <laughs> um, and then uh, the motorbike gang comes racing past them and uh, Wintergreen spots Bob Zemko Bob Zemko who's the guy that they suspect has all the drugs mm. and maybe has taken the money as well and so then you get a a really interesting motorcycle chase that takes you from the desert and into the outskirts of a town. Yeah, I th- I thought watching it, I got my geography completely screwed up. I thought maybe that because I do not know California geography, mm-hmm. um, I thought maybe the the deserts were just on the outskirts of LA and they're getting into LA proper, mm-hmm. which I think yeah it could be. I don't could see be. why it wouldn't be. Or maybe the town that they live in is just bigger than than we see, and they get into the yeah, town. No, because the cop that they stop at the beginning is a Californian detective, so they must be close to the border. Yeah, I I, I get the feeling that they're just on the out on just mm-hmm. outside LA, so the the chase kind of does take you into a city proper. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously not you know LA with the Capitol building around or yeah, anything, yeah. but you are now on on city streets and stuff, and it's a really really exciting. I know, yeah. Really inventively got, filmed chase. It's got little hints of Peckinpah with yeah. like cross cutting between like slow motion. You know, somebody shoots a motorbike and it bursts into flames with the rider still on it. Yeah, and there's, there's, were this any other kind of low budget movie from the seventies? There's a lot of technical aspects of it you would expect to be slightly, slightly fluffed or fudged, mm. and not quite work out. But everything is technically really polished. It's yeah, a really, really, like really good action sequence. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, sort of. You know, you, some some of the accidents and fatalities are just yeah, like it. draw gen, genuine gasps of yeah, disbelief. Yeah, the, like, the guy wow, that comes oh, off his bike just yeah. at the bottom of a ditch, and then the police car comes riding straight, straight over him. Straight yeah, over him. Yeah, it's nicely hidden in the car there as mm. well. And also, we still don't really know what's going on with Zipper, but the fact that he. Draws his, draws his gun and, and starts, starts firing yeah, in the streets. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's quite terrifying. Mm. You know, it's quite reckless, isn't it? And you know, we later find out that he's trying to cover up his uh, his theft. Right? But it, it's it's perfectly believable as just recklessness from yeah, from an yeah, inexperienced exactly. lazy cop who doesn't yeah, yeah. really know what he's doing. Yeah, Wintergreen's trying to stop him, ends up kicking him off his motorbike, mm. and then the crash climaxes. Oh, the uh, the chase climaxes with a what I think is actually a really cool crash as Wintergreen tries to stop the Bob Zemko's motorbike mm. and just veers him into a cafe and he hits uh, <laughs> hits the cafe, he goes flying through the window, goes crashing across the cafe and then lands just with his face in camera. You know, it's it's a brilliant stunt and it looks like it's actually the actor yeah. doing it. Yeah. And if I'm right, the actor is one of the musicians from the band Chicago. Yeah, apparently Chicago appear. Well, there's there's a concert scene as well, which is kind yeah. of shoehorned in a little, yeah, in yeah. which a lot of them appear. But yeah, they're 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 all in it because they're all associates of the director. Yeah, he produced like Chicago's first four or five albums, or something. and they were more jazz funk. Yeah, I don't I don't really really know. I think when we talked about it 
off mic I was I couldn't even remember the name of the band properly I was calling them <laughs> Detroit and <laughs> <laughs> there are lots of bands from that time that journey, you know, going from city to city. There's lots of bands from that time that I never listened to. Yeah, that all have like names of cities. Yeah, true. Yeah, so then there's a really nice interrogation sequence where Harv is interrogating Zemko and trying to work out where the money is. Zemko doesn't know anything about the money, and they're talking about his prints being there. So Zemko is another Vietnam vet as well. So Harv is just trying to rattle his cage he's talking about busting his kidneys and there's a really nice moment where Harv all of his dialogue is about interrogating Zemko but he sort of pivots and is face to face with Wintergreen and so all these things that he should be shouting at Zemko the uh, the kid in the interrogation table he's just shouting into Wintergreen's face mm. and grabs hold of him and ends up physically throwing him out Bob Zemko doesn't really give anything up in the interrogation because he knows nothing mm. um, we kind of cut to a concert where um, Wintergreen and the other police are kind of oddly doing security at the front of the stage yeah I but I wonder if this uh, I don't know again the timeline but where, where is kind of Altamont in this history you know that's uh, Altamont was the end of the 60s yeah it? so that's the terrible free concert that the Stones put on mm. and they had Hell's Angels as security and people got killed and it was yeah. an absolute disaster so I think maybe this is the point now where cops have to police more geeks and it's yeah it is a weird scene it's very shoehorned in but it does give us that really nice moment afterwards where Wintergreen's alone in the empty concert hall <laughs> with, just with a guy who's sweeping up all the, the cups and the, all the rubbish there mm. black dude with a brush just sitting down having his lunch and Wintergreen sits down behind him has like an internal monologue he talks about like his dad having uh, his dad dying and the doctor saying it was thrombosis but he knows that his dad drank himself to death and he was just lonely and then he says he realises he knows who killed Frank and he's, mm. known, he's known all along and you know so I guess the concert sort of gives him this quiet moment to speak to somebody who isn't one of the other characters because there are no other character who else is he going to tell right so mm. it might as well be a stranger you know sort of catholic confessional type sequence so it turns out that he knows he works out who killed who killed frank in the shack and it was it was willie it was willie um it's a beautiful scene this next sequence isn't it just on it feels like it's at night they're at the shack. Old Willie's there talking about his immortal soul. Mm. Looks like it's lit just from car headlights. Starts as a really wide shot and then I think it uh, zooms in. I don't think it's a track, is it? Mm. Zooms in to a really tight close-up as they're, they're talking about why Willie killed Frank and really he was just jealous. Just jealous of Frank selling yeah, drugs Frank, to Frank kids and the kids coming around and hanging out hanging out with young kids and just you know his, who took his attention away from Willie so Willie was lonely and, and shot him sad it's um it's a it's an odd I don't think it's you know it's one of those films that's more a, a, about the characters than the plot it's not you know it's just like a slender thread that, that the character observations are built on you know you don't come away with a sense of any, you know, that the film was about a, a mystery, yeah. a mystery being solved. Yeah, it's it was, not important, is it? 
obviously Wintergreen's confronted old Willie. Willie's confessed. confessed. Yeah. So what's he gonna do? Right. He's a good cop, so he has to call it in. Mm. Can't just leave him out here. And actually, it's probably the best thing to do. The most humane thing to do is to get Willie some help. But mm. yeah, like you say, the cops turn up. The cops turn up is which is Frank Poole and um, Wintergreen's immediate boss, who we've seen earlier in the film, and. Wintergreen explains it to them. He's kind of, you know, upset by the crime, but it's such a, it's played so low key. Yeah, yeah. And in, I can think in in seventy percent of other films, he'd have to shout down Frank Poole. He'd yeah, have to do some shouting down. Chest, you know, yeah. it would be it would be a confrontation, but it yeah. isn't. It's it's just laying out the facts and the fact that Frank Poole is is quietly. Understanding and yeah, accepts yeah. that he was wrong. It's just a beautiful scene. It's mm. really nicely yeah, played. Yeah, that's it. And Wintergreen just says to him, "You know, you were wrong, Harv. Yeah, you were wrong about this. You're wrong about that. You're wrong about the kids. You were wrong about Willie. In fact, you've been wrong about everything." But it's it's <laughs> really nicely filmed in the dark. Mm. It's set, you know, it's in the middle of the night, so you, you know you're Crickets only like are chirping in the background, yeah. aren't they? But it's the thing is, campfire scene from a western or something. Well, it's not so much that. It's the fact that the, the only things that are illuminated are the faces of the characters. Mm. So you're absolutely focused on the exchanges between the characters. Yeah, yeah. There's no distractions in the landscape or anything going on around yeah, them. Okay. You're just completely focused on them, and it's such a like a powerful, powerful scene because of that. Mm. And Wintergreen comes out of it. You know, he's he's right, but he's not smug he's not pounding his fist on the bonnet of cars trying to make a point he just makes his point quietly and mm. politely and then you know he's he's just yeah. straight down the but line then he, he goes back to his life doesn't he you know he's, he sort of accepts his position mm. in fact he's he goes off to see his zipper and he's like well you know maybe this is his kind of friend and he should spend some more time with zipper so we see him rock up at zipper's uh, caravan this is something again I could have done without. I could have done without Zipper's descent into kind of in the in in the scene that follows. Um, it basically turns out that Zipper has, has stolen the money mm. and bought himself this motorbike that he was dreaming about. And when it turns out that Wintergreen will have to turn it in, mm-hmm. um, Zipper He's goes crazy. Copper, He's a so proper he... copper. <laughs> Zipper goes crazy and starts he's shooting. He's drunk, isn't he, Zipper? He's yeah. drunk when Wintergreen gets there, so... But it's just, it just feels, again, it just feels a little bit over-egged to have to to take it to those extremes, to for Zipper to go crazy and start shooting people up. And somebody dies. Yeah, know? yeah. But I think, you know, those are the, the nice details with it. You know, the fact that he does, uh, he's, he can't see any other way out of it than to threaten Wintergreen maybe even take a shot at him misses yeah. shoots somebody in the background it's a really nice sequence where you just see somebody fall over <laughs> in the background and uh, Wintergreen's like you're killing people Zipper you gotta stop you gotta mm. put the gun down oh, I find that I find that quite harrowing that death it's not it's not you know like a, light, a lightweight death of an extra he's, somebody's just died in the yeah, background yeah, yeah. It's, it's really... and like he's in agony as well mm. and you know it's his his friend actually as close as he's got to having a friend Zipper's uh, <laughs> I love his outfit in that sequence as well. He's got the proper old, uh, those hillbilly long johns, doesn't he? Red long johns, <laughs> got denim shorts over the top of his long johns. Yeah, he? and lives, like, lives in a trailer. Yeah, what's he wearing? And he's got a painting of himself <laughs> on the wall of inside of his trailer. And then he's got his 
a tie hung up on the, the uh, screen door. So when you close the screen door and look through, his portrait is wearing a tie. So <laughs> so many random details there. And he's still got the holster as well. Again, we're, we're heading towards the very end of the film now, which is is controversial for anyone who's watched it. I would quite happily have entered the film pretty much at that scene in the dark where he says, you know, you were wrong. Because I love the character so much mm. and I don't think that, you know, the, the supporting characters need to be hammered into the ground as as weak or bad people quite as much. I would happily have just ended yeah, there. but this, I think this is about, you know, it's for, it's for Wintergreen it's uncorruptible soul to just but we've seen that we've know, already know, seen that for for an hour and a half yeah yeah but it's it's unending isn't it you know eventually you you lose <laughs> you lose to the uh, the american reality not the american dream mm. so is it immediately after this then that we go back to the highway and um and we see the vw bus again so kind of final sequence in the film we're back in Monument Valley he pulls over the VW the camper that we've seen same driver same driver but he has a, a very suspicious looking passenger yeah he does um, it's it's really nice that Wintergreen recognises the hippie and he's like I know you don't I and the hippie's like yeah they, they don't, he doesn't say yeah you bust you it's just like yeah we've met before yeah it's a very like Subtle, quiet acknowledgement is that yeah, we've you know, I owe you one. Yeah, I owe you one, meaning like I saw Zipper plant and you got busted, so off you go. Yeah, but he's taking his license, hasn't he? He's taking his license, he's looking at the license, mm. recognizes the guy, sends him on his way. And then, yeah, and then the film ends with what I remember looking up Electrogliding Blue in a film guide, um, or maybe it was just like a, the, a TV review, Radio, or something. Radio Times TV review and it was first on it said it has one of the most typically 70s endings um, which has always coloured the way I look at it because it is for me it's I don't like the ending I don't think it's necessary and I don't know what it says I don't know what it says other than that that I've we've built up this extremely likeable honest mm -hmm. you know really good guy who's surrounded by pretty shitty people generally speaking and we're going to kill him off yeah he's going to be killed off by somebody who we previously thought was you know or partly by somebody who we thought was you know a fairly innocent victim actually turns out to be as 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 much a part of corruption as as zipper made out yeah that's it it's i find it really disappointing and i don't really know what the film is trying to say to me here other than the world is shit well, America is saying yeah, America is is corrupted on all sides. To the core? Well, well not to the core, because otherwise Wintergreen wouldn't be red, white, and blue at heart. I just don't know why it can't. I don't know why Wintergreen can't live. I don't know why he has. I don't know. I don't know why he. Has, I don't know why his death is necessary to the film as it stands, and I don't know why. I just don't get it. Mm -hmm. Tell me, Shane. Well, I think that's. I think what they're they're saying is that you know, good men are broken by a bad country. So the sequence plays out. He's still got the hippie's driving license, so he chases him on the motorbike, waving him down, and uh, the back window opens on in the VW camper, and Wintergreen gets both barrels from a shotgun, blasts through him, smashes his motorbike, blasts him off the back. He goes rolling down the road, the bike careens off 
actually it just carries on going doesn't it and he falls off the back mm. the bike glides through frame on its own like the horse from a western you know, just kind of riding mm. off and then we see Wintergreen just roll to a standstill in the middle of the road sat up head slumped forwards and the camera keeps 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 chucking back and back and back and, and just back. disappears doesn't he into the landscape yeah and this is like a you know four or five minute scene yeah and the music starts and it's a song called bless america that plays four or five minutes before the first title even appears i think it it freezes at some point it freezes it? It and then it goes through a very very slow dissolve through sepia and then back to um, black and white, black and white yeah. you know again it's another of those sort of pleasant creative indulgences yeah that, that one is uh, it's long it's it? very long but I don't mind it you know it's nice to have these uneven you're just never sure if you should turn it off <laughs> or if the titles are going to start you know um, it's like the end of Apocalypse Now without the titles like do I, do I get up now <laughs> is it finished I mean I'm liking this metallic noise but <laughs> yeah. um, it's just it's impossible to talk about the end of this film without talking about Easy Rider because it's basically the mirror yeah. The mirror image of Easy Riders ending, yeah. where where the hippies are shotgunned by rednecks. Mm. Um, so it's this cop shot by hill hippies. Yeah. To complete the circle, we need a film with hillbillies killed by cops. Could do. No, it's it's just you know it's it's obviously it's some sort of reference to Easy Rider. I'm just wondering what. Maybe like a companion piece, you know, you have one film with dead hippies, one film with dead cop. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't think the film can, I don't think the ending can be analysed on its own outside mm. of any reference to Easy Rider. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, you know, it is a post-Easy Rider film. It's got explicit references to it. Mm -hmm. And the ending has the lead character being shotgunned. I'm just wondering why why that was necessary. There's, there's no solution. I, I would rather just not have happened. Yeah, sure. I like it. Yeah. Uh, you, you're just like nihilist <laughs> to the bone, yeah. aren't you? You just want every every leading character should die. Yeah. I, you know, I think there should be more dead lead characters at the end of films. Yeah, yeah I think it's Rambo it's certainly. Important. No, not Rambo. <laughs> Otherwise, we wouldn't have Rambo Five to look forward to sometime at the end of summer. Yeah, I think that the ending. I mean, you know, it's. I think you're supposed to sort of come out of the theatre and talk about it and what it means, and I, you know, I think it's it's designed to make it, you know it's not giving you an answer; it's telling you to like question the American dream. And you, you know, if you're an American, you're part in. You know, I remember being on a plane with somebody who's talking about uh, an American who's talking about you know being in the land of the free and home of the brave and all of that stuff, and you just think actually talking to you about it in yeah, real life yeah. yeah yeah in real life this actually happened I was on a plane um, and the guy next to me was like have you been to America before and I was like yeah I came here with the military and you know I really like it I grew up watching movies and stuff and he was like I love America land of the free home of the brave and I was like well I think it's it's a bit more complicated than that isn't oh, it oh, yeah. that was unwise <laughs> <laughs> but I think you know that sort of jingoism is in the culture and it's part of their uh, the education there and I think it's not questioned as much probably it's worse now than it was then and it's just not a question or a dialogue that they have and I think the film is trying to say you know what is America <laughs> but I think you know that's that's what it's trying to just 
you know, I think it's asking Americans to question which, uh, at that time, you know, the middle of the Vietnam War and student riots, police crackdowns. You know, I think it's just asking you to think about. I don't feel that at all. I, I think it's. It. I think if if that were the case, then I don't know. Do you think it? it it's just another cynical ploy on the part of the filmmakers to bum you out before you leave the cinema. I think I honestly, honestly think it's a fashionable bum out. I think that review that said it's it's a very much a seventies ending. Mm. I mean, even though it's probably a very conservative review for the Radio Times or something, did kind of nail it for me because it doesn't work for me. I think the film, you know, as I said, is is about you know a noble achievement to live by your own principles mm. um, which Wintergreen does and he lives I think, and dies by those principles yeah well I don't see why it's necessary he, he, I don't see why it's necessary for him to die he, he, you know by those principles I don't think it's a brave ending and I don't think it's a natural ending for the character it just doesn't feel right to me and I've no problem with you know characters dying in movies if it feels right but this this one just doesn't I feel that we've, we've, unless you wanted to make a point about how that kind of nobility is doomed to failure in the face of, you know, corruption, endemic corruption surrounding you. But I, I don't think that's the point of the film. I think the point of the film is the complete opposite. It's that, that Wintergreen comes through and kind of overcomes all this kind of corruption yeah, yeah. and weakness around him and he's, mm. he's untarnished by the end of the film. Yeah, that's it. So to, to kill him fairly arbitrarily it just doesn't work for me for me like he has to die like that because you know he's a good man that can't exist in that world of the 19, the 19, early 1970s America with all of its conflict yeah, he's, and he's, moral corruption he's too heroic for the times yeah that's it yeah, yeah. he is a hero Okay, I can get with that. Yeah, something we should talk about. I mean, we've sort of covered all of the uh, the other stuff. Are we still talking? Yeah, there's an eagle flying through the frame at the end yeah. before it freeze frames. That's a really and happy then, accident, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, and then uh, yeah, so that's probably why we have two minutes of, <laughs> of <laughs> in between of interim yeah. just to yeah. get that moment. When should we start fading? Wait for the eagle. That's, that's two and a half minutes, man. Yeah, just play some music. 